Hello everyone and welcome back to Reverb. I'm Colleen Storm and today we're diving back into another installment of our mini episode series Reblurb, where we introduce rhetorical theories and concepts, explain their histories and origins, and employ them to analyze contemporary language and action scenarios. I'm joined by Alex Helberg. Hello. And Calvin Pollock. Hi. Well, Calvin, I'm glad you're here because I wanted to ask you, what do you think of when I say the word freedom? Freedom. Uh, so I think of the, the film Braveheart, for sure. <laughs> um, but I, I guess freedom in U.S. politics is very complicated. Like we've had a lot of kind of progressive social movements, for instance, the movements of the 1960s, the black freedom struggle, the women's liberation movement. I associate those with the word freedom, but also I think more recently it's taken on kind of a conservative dimension where I think of like the Freedom Caucus, which is a House GOP caucus. I think of, you know, free market economics. So I think it's been very contested in the U.S. And part of that is because it's so central to American identity. Um, Alex, what about you? What comes to mind when I say the word justice? Justice. Well, you know, it's, it's typically my response when somebody asks what I want in my drink. I say, ju- just ice. <laughs> just ice is fine. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, I typically think about other concepts like equality, uh, you know, th- ways to make society more fair for everybody. I think about it on multiple levels, you know, interpersonally, you know, how to act in a just way towards other people, act in a way that is fair and equitable to people regardless of their of their backgrounds, as well as institutionally. I often associate justice with other institutions in society like the Department of Justice or, you know, the courts and things like that that are supposed to enshrine and ensure uh, justice for people in society as well. Well, have you ever noticed that those terms and phrases are kind of unbounded, that they're abstract and seem to hold some type of intrinsic value rather than a simple etymological definition? And how someone defines and uses those concepts sheds light on their personal ideology? People have a way of turning language into symbolic action, especially in scenarios of persuasion, such as political speeches. These linguistic pivots are called ideographs, and they function as a type of film on which people stamp their beliefs and values. We hear terms like national security and justice quite often in the news in different contexts, but what does the speaker actually mean when they say these things? What does the idea of freedom warrant? And how does the audience member know and understand the message being conveyed from one context to the next? First, let's take a step back and review the theoretical basis of the ideograph. The concept of the ideograph was first developed by rhetorical theorist Michael Calvin McGee in 1980 through an article in the Quarterly Journal of Speech entitled The Ideograph, A Link Between Rhetoric and Ideology. McGee's argument was that the field of rhetoric needed a concept that could help us talk about how particular words and phrases become powerful symbols, vehicles for larger systems of belief in society, or more simply, ideologies. He was most interested in how common slogans and turns of phrase deployed by political figures play a role in managing the opinions of the mass public, giving people a set of terms for talking and thinking about their political lives that are in line with the speaker's own ideology. McGee argued that these politically meaningful words and phrases, or ideographs, are used often enough over time that they become taken for granted and our responses to them so naturalized that they become automatic. He writes, quote, Though words only and not claims, such terms as property, religion, right of privacy, freedom of speech, rule of law, and liberty are more pregnant than propositions could ever be. They are the basic structural elements, the building blocks of ideology. Thus, they may be thought of as ideographs, for they signify and contain a unique ideological commitment. 
Another important aspect of McGee's formulation is that ideographs often act as a way to signal membership in a particular political or cultural group. For example, freedom, as we mentioned earlier, is extremely recognizable as an American in-group ideograph, so much so that many of us take for granted what it means in different contexts. Or when it is deployed for political purposes, consider for example George W. Bush's oft-repeated explanation for the 9-11 terrorist attacks, quote, they hate us for our freedoms, or Tea Party politicians' formation of the Freedom Caucus, or even the passing of the 2015 USA Freedom Act, which reauthorized and modified portions of the infamous Patriot Act, which is of course referencing another American uh, ideograph in that one. Other rhetorical scholars, such as Carol Winkler, pointed out that ideographs can also serve a negative function when they reinforce an ideology by negating or distancing from things that are outside of them. For example, during the McCarthy era, ideographs like communism, subversive, and treason were used to identify the predominant enemies in society. And in contemporary America, ideographs such as terrorism, foreign interference, and authoritarianism occupy a similar role. These are all terms that, in their historical context, become synonymous with evil or outside of the in-group constituted by an American nationalist ideology. For McGee, an appropriate analysis of an ideograph must include both a diachronic and a synchronic approach. By diachronic, McGee means that we need to view how an ideograph has been used over time in order to fully comprehend the kinds of meanings that have previously been attached to it in previous texts, speeches, and other rhetorical artifacts. The synchronic portion of the analysis calls our attention to how an ideograph is used in a specific context and how it relates to other ideographs surrounding it on that particular occasion. Hi everyone, Calvin here. To show how this concept can be useful, I'm going to give an example of a very simple ideographic analysis. The text I'll use is an op-ed by Frank Bruni published in the New York Times on December 19, 2017. The title of the piece is Democrats are the New Republicans. In this piece, Bruni himself engages in a kind of ideographic argument, though it is quite a naive argument, as I'll get to at the end. Bruni's thesis is fundamentally that, by embracing President Trump, Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and various other unsavory characters and policies, the Republicans are no longer living up to the ideographs they claim to stand for, and this presents an opportunity for Democrats. The argument is best encapsulated when Bruni writes, Under Trump's thumb and spell, the Republican Party is watching the pillars of its brand crumble. Democrats should grab hold of and appropriate them. Who among us doesn't care about family values defined justly and embraced honestly? Who doesn't see the good in patriotism, tradition, and decency? They're neither hokey words nor musty concepts, and that's why Republicans have been using and misusing them. But in the age of Trump, they constitute a language that Democrats can more credibly speak. So let's go through how Bruni makes his case that Democrats can more credibly claim various conservative Republican ideographs. Specifically, I'm going to focus on a synchronic ideographic analysis, highlighting what other concepts and values Bruni connects various ideographs to, as well as what concepts and values he distances them from. Bruni begins by discussing family values. The Republicans, Bruni argues, have long simplistically defined family values to mean simply heterosexuality, fecundity, and Christian piety. Yet they've ignored more essential issues such as the number of your marriages, the extent of your infidelities, or the scope of your sexual predation. 
The Democrats, meanwhile, now stand for the creation of more families through their support of marriage equality for LGBT people. They also demonstrate their commitment to families through economic policies that offer families flexibility and security, Bruni writes. Next, Bruni discusses the ideograph fiscal responsibility. Bruni argues that fiscal responsibility is not demonstrated by adding nearly $1.5 trillion to federal deficits over the next decade, which the Republicans' tax bill has done. By contrast, the Democrats show greater commitment to fiscal responsibility by always making sure that they have concrete plans to collect the revenue for whatever policies they devise. The ideograph of patriotism is, in Bruni's view, not exemplified by berating football players who kneel during the national anthem or playing down the threat from Russia, as Trump and the Republicans have done. The Democrats, on the other hand, have shown fidelity to patriotism by opposing a hostile power that tried to change the course of an American presidential election. Moving on, Bruni writes that national security as a value is not exemplified by taunting and getting into Twitter wars with other countries' rulers, as Trump has done, nor is national security helped by alienating longtime allies. Democrats exude national security through their interest in stewardship of a stable world order. Similarly, the Republicans have abandoned the ideograph of law and order through delegitimizing the FBI and inoculating Trump, while Democrats have endorsed law and order by putting faith in prosecutors, agents, and the system. The final two ideographs that Bruni addresses are decency and tradition. He writes that Trump has abandoned decency by using the public arena to bully private citizens, advancing his financial interests brazenly and bragging extravagantly. Here, Bruni explicitly connects decency to another value term, modesty. And he notes that Democrats, unlike Republicans, have embraced tradition, which he connects to freedom of the press, internet freedom, and judicial appointees who have a modicum of fluency in trial law. Now, a diachronic ideographic analysis is really helpful for understanding why Bruni's argument here is, at best, naive, and at worst, actively harmful to the interests of Democrats, liberals, or anyone else who opposes Trump and the Republican Party. If we take each of the ideographs that Bruni is claiming Democrats better exemplify than Republicans, and even more that Democrats ought to openly, publicly embrace, if we take each one and think about what it has meant historically in American politics, it's pretty clear why this argument makes no sense. Let's start with family values. Among other periods in U.S. history, the 1980s and the rise of the Christian evangelical movement was a particularly salient time for this ideograph. President Reagan was a strong proponent of family values, as were both George Bush's. In the rhetorics of these Republican figures, family values indexed the values of white, Christian, patriarchal families and communities. Values like honor thy father and mother, no sex before marriage, marriages between one man and one woman, abortion and non-heterosexuality are sins, and so on. Families with such values represented, and likely still represent, the vast majority of the Republicans' voters and donors. Thus, the words white and Christian are unspoken but very much tacitly implied modifiers of the ideograph family values. Law and order and fiscal responsibility tell similar stories. These phrases were popular, prominent slogans of Presidents Nixon and Reagan. Law and order was particularly associated with Nixon, with his war on drugs policies, and his appeal during the 1968 presidential campaign to the so-called silent majority, Americans who opposed protests for peace, civil rights, women's equality, and free speech. 
In Nixon's view, the silent majority had elected him to subject the radicals of the counterculture to the harsh rules of law and order, thus restoring calm to America. In other words, law and order as an ideograph has indexed conformism and reaction to progressive social movements. It has also often been combined with another ideograph Bruni supports, tradition. Law and order can help restore American tradition or traditional America, which has been disrupted by radical liberals and minorities. Fiscal responsibility, of course, has been almost ubiquitously conservative in its applications. The phrase emphasizes that governments must be responsible in their fiscal policies. They must not spend beyond their means. Genealogically, this idea likely emerged from the libertarian economic philosophies of Austrian economists such as Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, later influencing the University of Chicago's Milton Friedman. These thinkers all called for deregulation of major industries, the slashing of social programs for the poor, elderly, and sick, and the cutting of taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Once again, President Reagan put these policies into practice across the economy. Though Democratic President Bill Clinton deserves an honorable mention as well. Clinton was so successful in governing according to the precept of fiscal responsibility that he actually balanced the national budget. On the other hand, this entailed drastically cutting the social safety net and regulations on Wall Street. Patriotism is an ideograph that has been used throughout history to separate true Americans from enemies within, especially during wartime. In close connection with another of Bruni's suggested ideographs, national security, patriotism has justified many of the most shameful periods in American political history, from the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, to the show trials of McCarthyism, to J. Edgar Hoover's surveillance and harassment of civil rights leaders such as Martin Luther King Jr., and more recently, the post-9-11 policies of warrantless wiretapping and torture implemented by President Bush. Bush even named the law authorizing mass surveillance of Americans the Patriot Act, and that surveillance was conducted, of course, by the National Security Agency. Lastly, we come to decency. Here, Bruni has perhaps his best case. The most famous historical example of this ideograph comes from July 1954, when Joseph N. Welch, then chief counsel for the U.S. Army, issued a stirring defense of an attorney in his law firm, whom Joseph McCarthy had accused of communist associations. In a rebuke that was broadcast across the country on ABC, Welch demanded of McCarthy, Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? This moment, along with the dogged reporting and commentary of newscaster Edward R. Murrow for CBS, is widely credited with shifting public opinion against McCarthy and his anti-communist crusade. Nevertheless, decency and modesty are also terms that are frequently wielded against women, that uphold sexual conservatism, and that are often applied to people who display their wealth improperly, without sufficient restraint. This latter usage is one way that upwardly mobile, new rich, often especially non-white people, are disciplined into norms of white upper-class culture. So, to sum up, the reason it doesn't make sense for Democrats to embrace these slogans is because it doesn't make sense to read them only literally, to only consider their denotative meanings. We also need to consider their associations, their connotations, which identities they tend to index, and what kinds of people and kinds of interests they have tended to exclude. What ideographic analysis reveals is that terms like family values, fiscal responsibility, and patriotism aren't just accessories that we either can or should tack on to our existing politics for extra pizzazz. 
Rather, they're more like linchpins holding entire identities together. So sure, Democrats, become the party of law and order and tradition. Just be aware that in doing so, you will literally become what Bruni recommends in his article's title, The Republicans. Hopefully this analysis has shown you some of the power of the ideograph as a rhetorical concept. If you want to learn more, check out the citations and additional readings provided in our show notes. Before you know it, you're going to start noticing ideographs everywhere you look or listen. Thanks for giving me the freedom to try to do them a little bit of justice for you. Take care. Our show today was produced and edited by Colleen Storm, Alex Helberg, and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers are Ryan Mitchell, Caitlin Rossi, Alona Altman, and Sophie Wadzik. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.